You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today is the eighth and the final episode in our series on Hernan Cortez and the conquest of Mexico. Let's get at it. Last time, we ended our show with the fall of Tenochtitlan. Cortez had defeated the Aztecs and captured Emperor Cuauhtémoc after a 75-day siege. The city was in ruins and hundreds of thousands were dead. And while that takes us up to the conclusion of our narrative, there is still a lot more to talk about. Here is the agenda for today's episode. First, I have a few general notes about the series I want to discuss. Second, we will cover the immediate aftermath of the siege, focusing on some of the big things that happened in the wake of the defeat of the Aztecs. Third, we will talk about some of the people, outside of Cortez, involved in our story. Fourth, we will then focus on Cortez and cover the remaining years of his life. And finally, I want to make a few random observations about the fall of the Aztec Empire and the legacy of Cortez and the Spanish conquerors. So that is the agenda. Let's get going. First item, I have a couple of quick notes regarding this series. Note number one. All of this stuff we talk about, and to be honest, have talked about, should really come with a bit of a disclaimer. I really just want to remind everyone that many of our sources are questionable. That includes Cortez. I mean, frankly, the guy wrote to his king and queen seeking to glorify himself and to justify all that he had done. So at times, we just have to be wary. But in the end, the sources we have are the sources we have. We just have to go with it and know that there are some iffy parts here and there. Note number two. This series on Cortez was different than what we have done in the past. While Cortez set out to explore, he always had profit and glory in mind. And when he landed in Mexico, the exploring part of the story quickly ended, and this all became a military campaign. That's fine, but I just want to acknowledge that these stories of exploration can change focus very quickly and I hope I did justice to the narrative. Okay, that wraps up the loose ends. Let us move on to our second section, the aftermath of the fall of Tenochtitlan. The Aztec Empire officially ended on August 13, 1521, with the capture of Cuauhtémoc and the fall of the capital. In the wake of the defeat of the Aztecs, a wholesale ransacking of the city and the slaughter of the surviving defenders and civilians would take place. The death toll was staggering including the 75-day siege, plus the killings after the city's capitulation, upwards of 200,000 Aztecs were dead, including most of the nobility. Tens of thousands more were enslaved. As for the Spanish, the exact number of dead is all over the board. I generally see numbers ranging from three to 500, and that is just in these final months of fighting. 
Overall, the Spanish would lose over a 1,000 men during the campaign, maybe even closer to 2,000. As for Cortez's Indian allies, their losses are hard to know as well, but the Tlaxcalans probably suffered between 20 and 40,000 dead during the campaign against the Aztecs. So, the city of Tenochtitlan was in ruins, and the dead were everywhere. Cortez had won, so what's the first thing he wants to find out about? Well, you guessed it, treasure. You know, the reported eight tons of silver and gold and jewels and pearls and other sparkly stuff that the Spanish so desperately desired and had lost on the Night of Sorrows a year earlier. Well, when asked about it, the Aztecs just shrugged and said, yeah, we're not telling you anything. Of course, this did not go over well with Cortez or his men. They wanted their loot. They hadn't come to Tenochtitlan for a bunch of ashes and dead bodies. So, if the Aztecs weren't going to fess up as to where all the treasure had gone, well, there was some good old-fashioned torture ready to be served up. Thus, torture would be put on the menu, and that meant some answers for Cortez, although they were answers he did not like. Cortemoc said that he had dumped all the treasure in the lake, a way to spit in the eye of Cortez. This was incomprehensible to the Captain General. That Cuauhtémoc would simply throw away all the treasure was madness. No one would do something like that. It must be hidden. So there was more torture. Now, the truth is, we don't really know exactly what happened to all the treasure. Cuauhtémoc may very well have dumped it all in Lake Texcoco, or, as we mentioned a couple of episodes ago, there are some legends that say the treasure was spirited out of the city and hidden away in the mountains. Some stories put its location even as far north as modern-day Utah. But dumping it all in Lake Texcoco was a more likely story, or maybe it had just been pocketed by the thousands of Aztec warriors and civilians in the aftermath of the Night of Sorrows, when the Spanish had lost it all fleeing the city. No matter, Cuauhtémoc did not have the treasure, and Cortés was very unhappy about it. The Spanish would torture Cuauhtémoc, as well as the King of Tlacopan, who had been captured fleeing the city with the Emperor. The King of Tlacopan would die as a result of the torture. And as for Cuauhtémoc, well, the Spanish would soak his feet in oil and light them on fire. The emperor would not die, but his feet would be permanently damaged, and he would walk with a limp for the rest of his life. The Spanish would, of course, search the ruins of the city for the treasure, and they would send divers into Lake Texcoco looking for it. They would find some stuff, but it reportedly paled compared to what they had lost the previous year. To this day, people will still go searching for Montezuma's gold. If the trove exists, it has never been located although occasionally, someone in Mexico City does find some Aztec gold while digging under their home or in their garden. Now, let us not cry over Cortez's lost treasure. He would still find plenty of loot in the city, and let's not forget, he was extracting tribute from all sorts of native towns and kingdoms. In the end, he would have a bunch of gold and silver and jewels. How much treasure? Well, I have read that the King's Fifth, the one-fifth of the treasure owed to the Spanish crown, was sent back to Spain later that year, and it included 500 pounds of gold, and hundreds of pounds of pearls. With that as a measuring stick, that means that Cortez had still managed to collect 2,500 pounds of gold. By the way, the loot destined for the Spanish crown would get captured by French privateers off the Azores, and instead of going to Spain, would end up in the coffers of the French government. Ah, karma, you gotta love it. So, as for the rest of the treasure, well, Cortez would keep a fifth for himself and then he would make sure his captains and key personnel were taken care of, and then there was all those people that he owed money to back in Cuba and Hispaniola, which was not insignificant. And then there were other payments which needed to go to key Spanish officials in the Americas and back in Spain. After all these people got their shares, Cortes would find that he didn't have much left to pay off his men, which meant that he had an unhappy army, 
They had expected a lot of treasure, and what they were given was ultimately a pittance compared to what they had been promised. It was so bad that there was a threat of mutiny as rumors went around that Cortez had rooms full of gold and was hoarding it from the men. Rumors, by the way, that were kind of true. Well, ultimately, there would be no mutiny. Cortez would manage to fulfill many of his obligations in other ways, including giving out lands and commissions and positions. Other men would be granted the right to explore and exploit other lands in the region. The estates that Cortez gave to some of his men, the encomiendas, would prove to be very valuable. So, once the smoke had cleared from the siege of Tenochtitlan, Cortez would face the fact that he now had a huge territory to govern. He would start by electing to rebuild Tenochtitlan, which he would call Mexico City. The Spanish would maintain much of the same layout of the city, but they would eradicate any remnants of the Aztec Empire, including raising the pagan temples, pyramids, and monuments. In their place would be churches and cathedrals. Unfortunately, the intricate waterworks constructed by the Aztecs to control the five interconnecting lakes in the Valley of Mexico would be neglected by the Spanish, who simply did not understand just how sophisticated the system was. The waters of the five lakes would quickly become fouled up and start to evaporate. The lakes would eventually begin to shrink. The population of the Valley of Mexico, which had been upwards of a million people when the Spanish arrived, shrank considerably after the fall of Tenochtitlan, primarily due to disease. So, outside of Mexico City, Cortes would set his sights on the surrounding cities and kingdoms of Mexico. He would dispatch his captains, along with his Indian allies, in all directions, gradually bringing the entire region under his control. Concerned about Cortes's growing power, the Spanish crown would try to bring him to heel, and within six months of the fall of the Aztec Empire, they would send a new governor to Mexico. However, Cortes would continue his legal wrangling, and eventually the guy would be put on a ship and sent away. Cortes would just keep running things, until he would, in the fall of 1523, be appointed governor, captain general, and chief justice of the newly conquered territory, dubbed New Spain of the Ocean Sea. Thus, all of the legal stuff he had done, all of the egos he had stroked, all of the bribes he had given out, well, it had paid off. His conquests were legitimized in the eyes of the Spanish crown. This was a massive victory for Cortes, who had always faced some blowback due to his actions. Now, I don't want to go too deeply into this stuff, as we will deal with it on the wrap-up of the life of Cortes. Instead, I want to pivot to our next section, a look at the lives of some of the key people from our narrative. The first of these people are Cortes's three main subordinates, Captains Gonzalo de Sandoval, Pedro de Alvarado, and Cristobal de Olid. We should note that these guys were not insignificant. They had proven to be capable and loyal men. They had won battles for Cortes and kept the soldiers in line during difficult times. They had been very important to the success of the expedition, so let's take a look at each of them. Gonzalo de Sandoval was probably the most loyal and capable of Cortez's commanders. He was viewed as a modest and even-tempered man. After the fall of Tenochtitlan, he would spend several years campaigning against rebellious native peoples. He would then accompany Cortez on an expedition to Honduras in 1525. During all of this, he would prove to be a successful soldier, explorer, and administrator. I do want to point out that Sandoval, like Cortez, could be extraordinarily ruthless when needed. On a campaign to pacify a rebellious area, he reportedly executed nearly 500 native nobles and sold 20,000 people into slavery. Sandoval would travel to Spain with Cortez in the fall of 1527. Even before departing, he was having health issues, and after reaching Spain, he would die in early 1528. He was only 30 or 31 years old. 
His years of loyal service had made him a rich man, but he had no family, so his considerable fortune would go to a niece. Pedro de Alvarado was another of Cortez's capable commanders. He was known for his quick temper and cruel treatment of the native peoples in the New World. It was under Alvarado that the Spanish had slaughtered the unarmed Aztecs during the Festo of Tashcatl. Alvarado would go on to spend the next 20 years in New Spain, leading multiple campaigns against native peoples in places such as modern-day Guatemala and El Salvador. He would become the governor of Guatemala in 1527 and add the governorship of Honduras in 1532. Now, I want to note that Alvarado and Cortez would find their friendship broken when, in 1527, Alvarado married a woman connected to the powerful house of Albuquerque. This is after promising to marry Cortez's niece. With that action, Cortez would never trust his former captain again. By the way, Alvarado was already married to a native woman, the daughter of the class colony leader, Zicotenga the Elder. But that is one of those what-happens-in-Vegas-stays-in-Vegas incidents that was pretty much ignored by all parties when it became inconvenient. Unlike Sandoval, Alvarado was a vain and ambitious man. He made many enemies and was not afraid to challenge people. It made him a poor ruler. He was excessively cruel and vicious, and he showed little aptitude or patience for governing. He was pretty much hated by all of his subjects. Where Alvarado thrived was in the field as a soldier. And it was his skills as a soldier, as well as his ambition and greed, that would make him very wealthy. He would end up accumulating lots and lots of land during his lifetime. Alvarado would die in 1541 while preparing to lead his troops against some rebellious natives. The horse he was riding would get spooked and throw Alvarado, who would get crushed to death when the horse went wild. Alvarado was about 55 or 56 at the time of his death. And that leads us to the third of Cortez's captains, Cristobal de Olid. Olid, like Sandoval and Alvarado, would continue to serve under Cortez in the years after the conquest of the Aztec Empire. He would command Spanish forces, along with Colin allies, on campaigns to conquer surrounding cities and kingdoms. In 1523, he was dispatched by Cortez to conquer Honduras, but while resupplying in Havana, Olid was coaxed by Cuban Governor Valasquez to declare himself independent of Cortez. Olid would then set off to conquer Honduras by himself. That must have burned Cortez, as he had pretty much done the same thing to Valasquez. Cortez, as you can imagine, was not the kind of person to let such an insult stand. He would send a force to deal with Olid. A battle would end up taking place, and Cortez's former captain would be defeated. Depending on which source you like, Olid would either be captured and then executed, or else his men rose up and killed him. Either way, he would die in 1524 at the age of 37-ish. Now, the next person I want to talk about is La Malinche, Cortez's native translator. La Malinche, called Dona Marina by the Spanish, played a critical part in Cortez's conquest of Mexico. Her translation skills made her a constant companion of Cortez, and she became a trusted advisor. Without her language skills, the Spanish would never have been able to converse with the native peoples in such an effective manner. La Malinche would eventually become Cortez's mistress, and in 1522, she would bear him a son, Martin Cortez. She would continue to work with Cortez, but would eventually, with Cortez's blessing, marry a Spanish soldier, Juan Jaramillo, who had been a commander on one of the brigantines in the siege of Tenochtitlan. La Malinche would have another child, a girl named Maria. Then she would pretty much disappear from the history books around 1529. Some speculate that she died at this time, but there is some evidence that she lived to around 1550. La Malinche is a complex figure in Mexican history. Some people call her a traitor for helping Cortez and the Spanish. But we cannot forget this woman's history. 
She had been a slave, perhaps even sold by her own mother. How can you fault a woman for working her way out of that situation? She had little reason to love her people. In the end, I think most people respect and admire her for what she was able to accomplish in her situation, despite the association with Cortez. Today, references to La Malinche are quite common in popular culture. She's in novels and movies and songs, and there was even a spaceship on the show, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, named after her. The nerd in me finds that pretty darn cool. The next person I want to talk about is Quotemoc, the Aztec Emperor. After his capture and torture, Quotemoc would remain as the leader of the Aztecs, but it was a nominal position, and he had very little real power. Quotemoc would spend a few years in this situation before being brought by Cortes to Honduras in 1525. Cortes, who was leading a campaign in the region, feared that Quotemoc would plot a rebellion if he was left alone, so Cortes brought him and other Aztec leaders with him on the campaign. Here, Cortes said that he uncovered a plot led by Quotemoc to kill him. Cortes would have Quotemoc, as well as the kings of Clacopan and Texcoco, executed, along with eight other nobles. This sort of action would be in line with Cortez's previous behavior. In the past, when he felt threatened, he would strike out violently, killing his enemies, real or perceived, as a way to not just remove them, but to frighten those who might be entertaining him some harm. It would be an inglorious ending for the former emperor of the greatest nation of the Americas. Cuauhtémoc, however, in death, has become a symbol and hero to the indigenous people of Mexico. He was, after all, the guy who fought to the bitter end against the invaders. He could have surrendered many times, but he left his city in rubble rather than submit to the Spanish. Today, Cuauhtémoc is honored in many ways throughout Mexico. There are statues and stories and paintings and music dedicated to him. He is on coins and on money. Many places are named after him, including a federal district, cities, and train stations. So, that takes care of the specific people in our story, but I do want to mention one other group, the Klaus Collins. The Klaus Collins, as we have noted, were critical to Cortez's success in Mexico. After the fall of Tenochtitlan, they would continue to have a special relationship with the Spanish, providing men and support in the campaigns conducted by Cortez to bring the entire region under control. Due to their special status, the Klaus Collins would have many privileges in this colonial era. They would be able to ride horses, carry firearms, and hold noble titles, as well as rule their own settlements without a lot of Spanish interference. This special relationship between the Klaus Collins and the Spanish would last through most of the 1500s, but things would gradually change, and by the 1600s, Klaus Collar was being taxed and having their lands occupied just like other indigenous peoples. Some may view the Klaus Collins as traitors, but I think most people understand the complexities of the situation. When Cortes arrived in 1519, no one was really thinking about Europeans versus indigenous peoples. That was a huge picture that was almost incomprehensible to imagine. People lived and thought locally. Their allegiance was to their town and city, maybe the surrounding region, but not to places hundreds or even thousands of miles away. So when the Spanish arrived, they were not enemies in the eyes of many people. The enemy was the nearby land that had attacked and tormented them for decades and even centuries. No one sat back and said, Hey, these newcomers are a great danger. We should unite against them. Life just didn't work that way. By allying with the Spanish, the Klaus Collins were following the old the enemy of my enemy is my friend axiom. In the end, the alliance would help the Klaus Collins maintain their autonomy for nearly a century, but in time, they would be folded into the great Spanish colonial empire, one small cog in a much bigger machine. So that wraps up the periphery groups and people I want to discuss. That leaves us with the focus of our series, Hernan Cortez. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Let us start by summarizing the rest of Cortez's life. As noted earlier, he would get formal recognition as the governor of New Spain in 1522, but the crown also set up a structure to curb his power, something that annoyed him to no end. Still, Cortes had been wildly successful. The conquest of Mexico had garnered Spain the largest addition of land and treasure ever secured by a single person. As ruler of New Spain, Cortes would begin the rebuilding of Tenochtitlan, now called Mexico City, at great expense, and he constructed a massive palace for him at Cuernavaca. He would also be important to the religious transformation of Mexico when he invited the Franciscans to come to the New Lands to convert the large native population. The Catholic Church, to this day, is a major part in the life of the people of Latin America. Cortes would be granted a coat of arms in 1525 and later be given the title Marquis de Bahia de Oaxaca. He had lands and wealth beyond imagination. The Oaxaca Valley was one of the wealthiest in Mexico, and he had 23,000 vassals. In time, he owned dozens of silver mines. He would, however, always be fighting and battling with the Spanish crown and his enemies in court and in the offices of colonial officials throughout the empire. The truth is that many people resented Cortes and how he had acquired his fortune, and many feared the power he had accumulated, some wondering if he would set himself up as a king in these new lands. So, despite all the wealth and accolades, he would be involved in disputes, whether over money or territory or whatever, for much of his life. Cortes would conduct an expedition to Honduras from 1524 through 1526, executing Cuauhtémoc along the way. In late 1527, he would travel to Spain, where he would be welcomed as the Grand Conquistador. On his return to Mexico in 1530, he would, however, find a new viceroy in charge of New Spain's civil affairs, greatly curtailing his own power. From 1530 to 1541, Cortes would be regulated to military affairs in New Spain, as well as exploration. In 1536, he explored parts of northwest Mexico, becoming the first European to discover the Baja California Peninsula. In 1841, Cortes, despite all the success he had experienced, would find himself in debt. He had spent lavishly on himself and his expeditions, and these recent forays had not netted him the treasure he had hoped for. Thus, he would return to Spain that year, in part to escape creditors and lawsuits. While in Spain, Cortes would be disappointed to find that many, including the crown, had forgotten about him. It is said that he could not get an audience with King Charles, so he pushed his way right up to him. The king would ask who he was, and Cortes reportedly said, Quote, I am the one who gave you more kingdoms than you had towns before. End quote. While in Europe, Cortes would take part in an expedition against the Ottoman Empire in 1541, attacking the city of Algiers on the Barbary coast. The massive expedition, under the command of King Charles, was a dismal failure. Over 17,000 men were killed or captured, and 150 ships were lost in severe weather. Cortes almost drowned in a storm. Cortes would hang around Europe for the next few years before deciding to return to Mexico. 
However, before he could depart, he would get sick with dysentery, and on December 2nd, 1547, he would die as a result. He was 61 or 62 years old. Cortez had asked to be buried in Mexico, and his body would finally be sent there in 1556, and he was buried with his mother and one of his sisters. Over the next few hundred years, the body would get moved several times, and then in 1823, after the independence of Mexico, it was feared the body would be desecrated, as Cortez represented the things that so many hated about the colonial past. Thus, everyone thought Cortez's body had been sent to Sicily, but in reality it had only been moved to a different spot in the same building. Then, 13 years later, it was moved to a church. Again, this was all kept secret. Cortez's body would be rediscovered in 1946, when a secret file discussing the movements of the body was made public. Thus, the location of Cortez's remains was revealed to be in Mexico City, at Parisimia Concepcion and Jesus Nazarena Church. The body was entombed in a wall right next to the altar. By the way, sorry if I messed up that name. After the bones were officially identified, they were resealed in the wall of the church, where they remain to this day. A modest plaque marks the site, but nothing more. By the way, at the time, some people argued that the bones should be destroyed, or thrown into the ocean. Instead, they have remained in the church where they are, as one website put it, quote, an uncomfortable guest, end quote. So, that is the story of Cortez's remains. Now some notes about his family. If you recall, Cortez had a wife, Catalina Suarez, and he had not seen her for several years. Also, he had numerous mistresses, one of which was his translator, La Malinche. Catalina Suarez would arrive in Mexico in the fall of 1522 and find La Malinche toting around an infant named Martin Cortez. Yeah, that must have been awkward. However, Catalina would die in November of that year. There were whispers that Cortez had murdered his wife, but he was never officially accused of any crime. Did he kill her? Well, we don't really know. Cortez had many enemies, and they very well may have fueled the speculation about his wife's death to discredit him. In the end, it's all just speculation. Cortez would remarry in 1529 to Juana Ramirez de Ariano. They would have six children, four girls and two boys. One of the girls and one of the boys would die shortly after childbirth. As noted, Cortez had a son with La Malinche, and he fathered numerous other children with various native women. Cortez's official line of male descendants, official is in air quotes there, would die out in 1629, but there are those alive today who can trace their lineage directly to the conqueror of Mexico. So that is the life of Hernan Cortez. The man is, as you can imagine, not a beloved figure in Mexico, but he certainly has not been forgotten. In popular culture, Cortez shows up in movies and novels and songs. One of the most famous of these is probably Neil Young's song, Cortez the Killer. Also, there is currently a big-budget miniseries about Cortez being produced by Steven Spielberg for Amazon. It will star Javier Bardem as Cortez. That could be very interesting, but we have to remember that Hollywood is not always great with regards to historical fiction of this era. Just look at Ridley Scott's 1492, Conquest of Paradise. Yikes. So, a little more about Cortez. There are many places named after him. The Paso de Cortez was mentioned in an earlier episode, and you'll find monuments and statues, not necessarily extolling the man, but at least acknowledging him. For instance, in Mexico City, there is a monument commemorating the first meeting of Cortez in Montezuma. In the end, Cortez simply represents a terrible time in the history for most of the indigenous peoples of Mexico, and it's hard to find people who really like the guy. Personally, I find Cortez to be a complex character, at least from my view of history. I admire the man's bravery and abilities as a soldier. He was a skilled leader and diplomat. 
and his ability to play the various factions of Mexico to his advantage was quite remarkable at times. But let's be honest, it's hard to like or admire the guy. He was an egomaniac, he was paranoid, he was duplicitous, and he was ruthless, especially when he felt threatened. The slaughter at Cholula was especially nasty, but that kind of behavior was not a one-off thing. Mass killings and enslavements were the norm, not the exception with Cortez, or most of the Spanish at this time. I will say that Cortez is unique amongst our stories on this show, in that he ended up being more of a conqueror than an explorer. In this podcast, we usually find that explorers are the harbingers of what's to come. They show up, find stuff, maybe even make their mark on these places. But in the end, they go away. They are in no position to do much more. Other men will follow the explorer, and that is when the dramatic changes usually occur. But Cortez was like a tidal wave to the Aztec Empire. He was a force that powered in and swept up everything in his path and brought it down in shattered pieces. He had challenged a massive empire and toppled it. That was an extraordinary thing. So that is my take on Cortez. I want to finish up with some observations about this series and make some notes about the ramifications of Cortez's campaign against the Aztecs. Here we go. The first thing I want to do is answer the simple question of how did Cortez accomplish what he did? How did five to six hundred Spanish soldiers manage to bring down an empire of millions? The question still boggles. Here is my short and simple list. 1. Technology, in particular firearms and steel. The native peoples just had no answer in combat to cannons and crossbows and swords and armor. These were elements that were simply unimaginable to the Aztecs, and their inability to overcome them was a critical reason for the success of the Spanish. 2. Horses. The Spanish cavalry was, in several battles, the single most important element involved in the fight. On multiple occasions, it won the day for Cortez and his men. Like the firearms and steel, the great war horses were something that the Aztecs could not counter, and they paid dearly for it. 3. Politics Upon arriving in Mexico, Cortes very quickly understood the weaknesses of the Aztec Empire. It was a multi-ethnic, multicultural world that was a lot easier to pry apart than to keep together. Cortes would exploit these tribal and ethnic divides to great advantage. 4. The Clos Collins and other indigenous allies this sort of piggybacks on number three. Cortez exploited the hatred that other people had for the Aztecs. His alliance with the powerful Clos Collins would be the most important of all these agreements. The Clos Collins would save Cortez on numerous occasions, and he would never have been able to defeat the Aztecs and conquer Tenochtitlan without them. 5. Smallpox When Cortez went on the offensive against the Aztecs in the summer of 1521, the lands were getting swept by a smallpox epidemic. This would eventually kill up to half of the people in the empire, and it would cause massive social and economic issues and weaken the empire right when it needed to remain strong and cohesive. Smallpox may have been the single most important factor in the defeat of the Aztec Empire. 6. Cortez and his captains In their victory, we should acknowledge that Cortez and his captains had done some amazing things. Cortez had proven to be bold and audacious. The building of the brigantines on Lake Texcoco, the defeat of Narvaez, the whole siege of Tenochtitlan, it was all quite amazing. It is a nod to Cortez's ability as a leader and tactician. I want to mention that none of these guys was perfect, but in the end, the decisions made by Cortez were generally good ones, and they would lead to victory. As a number seven, you could add luck, but that's probably being a bit too simplistic. But it's not out of line. Cortez had been very lucky. There were times where he could have, should have been, defeated, but something would happen to save his butt or propel him to victory. At times, you'd rather be lucky than good. 
So that's my seven-point Hal Cortez 1 list. I hope it sums things up in a nice bow. Now, a few more comments for you. Cortez's victory would spur more exploration of the New World. His victory over the Aztecs had brought him money and fame, and in the future you will see more and more expeditions head into the wild, hoping to duplicate Cortez's success. The one that would come closest would be the conquest of the Inca Empire in the 1530s, but nothing would ever match what Cortez had done at Tenochtitlan. Another comment for you. Cortez's victory against the Aztecs brought some tragedies. Some are very obvious. The end of Aztec culture. Hundreds of thousands of dead due to disease and war. The implementation of the brutal encomienda system on the population. However, with or without Cortez, all of those things likely would have happened at some point and at some time. They are tragic, but they were probably destined to occur. But the one thing that really didn't have to happen was the destruction of Tenochtitlan. If you read a lot about the city, like I have done in these past few months, it's hard not to be enamored with the Aztec capital. This was one of the crown jewels of the world. It was certainly the greatest city in the Americas. But when we are done, it is left in rubble. It would have been amazing to have had that city to survive. I would love to have seen such a thing. But on the flip side, I can also respect the tenacity and commitment that the Aztecs showed toward defending their homes. That, in of itself, is admirable. The conquest of Mexico would have massive, massive repercussions around the world. The lands would prove to be a base for one of the greatest, if not the greatest, colonial empire the world has ever seen. The money that flowed from the New World to Spain would make her the greatest power in the Western world for decades. The effects on the people of Mexico would be even more massive, and much more personal. And these are issues that linger to this very day. And I think it's probably best to just leave things there. It's such a huge subject, and as this podcast is really focused on Aaron and Cortez, I don't want to lose focus on what we're talking about. But know that it is a huge topic, and if you are interested, I advise you to look for some other podcasts and resources about the subject matter. Other, much more knowledgeable people can take you into the subject matter far better than I can. And with that, it is time to wrap up this long journey. I will leave you with this final thought. In the very first episode of the series, I noted that no man deserved the title Conquistador more than Hernán Cortés. He was the embodiment of the Spanish explorer and soldier and nobleman, both the good and the bad parts. And what he did had a profound effect on the world. I hope I have been able to convey that sentiment in our narrative. So that is it, Hernán Cortés and the Conquest of Mexico. It has been a heck of a story. I hope you have enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening. I will see you next time. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.